0: Can be seated. So, our message this morning continuing in the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7, the end of chapter 7. And uh, we're going to be in verses 36 through 50 this morning, talking about shame and gratitude. Shame and gratitude. Uh, And we are in a society today that thinks shame is the worst thing ever. Don't shame somebody because they'll feel bad about themselves, right? Well, we need to have shame, and we need to feel bad about our sin so that we can be grateful for the one who saved us and show him love. So the big idea this morning is that proper understanding of sin should bring shame, and realization of forgiveness should bring gratitude and love. And three points we'll go through as we look at our text is, First, Jesus came to save sinners. Sinners. He didn't come to save the righteous, because there were not none anyway. Number two, pride keeps many from believing on Jesus. And number three, all believers have been forgiven much. So, as we look around, we see lots of people, all different ages here. How long have you been a Christian? And almost... Every church, you'll find a number of different types of people. You'll find older Christians who have been Christians for a really long time, but have maybe somewhat forgotten how sinful they were when Jesus saved them. There's people like that probably in most churches. Then you'll have younger Christians. By younger, I mean younger in the faith, not necessarily by age. But they're still in awe, that they were forgiven. They're just incredibly amazed that they're part of this kingdom now. And then you have those who judge others that have not felt the need for forgiveness. They think they just inherited the faith. Maybe they came up in the church and they know the rules, but they look at others and think, oh my goodness, what's wrong with these people? then there's those who understand their need for jesus but they haven't yet trusted him there's people like that in a lot of churches and then there's those who attend just to please somebody else they'd rather not be here at all just watch on easter we'll see resurrection sunday a lot of that will come to please their mom or the grandma or someone because they know that's expected of them as a family tradition but yet they're not really saved they don't really come because they're loving Jesus. They're coming because maybe because they love mom, and that's good. So there's all kinds, of, and there's other categories I could have given. There's a lot of different people in most churches. And as we look at this story in Scripture this morning, I am praying that we may find a new and profound sense of what we are saved from so that our gratitude and our love for Jesus may be renewed. All right, so let's, I'll read through this passage straight through so you hear the whole narrative, and then we will pick it apart to see what we can learn from it. Okay, starting at verse 36, Luke writes, One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner When she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is a great story, and one that convicted me greatly during the week as I was looking over it. And I pray that it will convict any of us who may have sometimes an attitude, which probably, if we're honest, we all do at different times, about someone else and their failings and what we think is lacking. Let's go back to the beginning, verse 36 there, that one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. So we don't have necessarily in text given us the motivation of this Pharisee to invite Jesus. We could make some guesses, perhaps, but the Bible doesn't tell us explicitly why he invited Jesus. But maybe did he like having a celebrity at the table? Jesus was certainly a local celebrity at this time, and maybe he liked to have name dropping things. I had Jesus over to my dinner the other night, you know. Um, maybe that's why. Maybe he was actually curious about Jesus. Maybe he was going to try to find a trap for him, like we see throughout the Gospels that the Pharisees often tried to trap Jesus in words. We don't know the exact motive. We can only guess. But often, for someone that could host a dinner like this, uh, they would have a large home usually uh, and maybe have sort of an inner courtyard where this meal would take place. And they would call, some people call it Oriental style, um, but they would recline on the floor. It would be a low table. I went to a restaurant, it was like this when I was in Japan many, many years ago. Um, and it's kind of odd when you're not used to sitting that way to eat. <laughs> but that, this was part of their custom. They would recline, kind of their feet out behind the table, kind of leaning towards it, leaning on an elbow perhaps, and eating with the other hand or something like that. And so in this case, the feet were away from the table. And so we see in first verse, 30, uh, verse 37, Behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. So just about every commentator on this passage, and as you look in the text of the Greek that this was originally written in, agree that this was not just a sinner, like a kind of a very generic term, because we're all sinners, right? But this was probably a very specifically sinful person, uh, and most agree that her sin was probably either prostitution or adultery. And how does she just show up at this house? Like, oh, he's let me just walk in the door. John Sappi is having some people for dinner, and I just walk in the front door and sit down, right? Well, he probably would let me because he's so kind to me. But this was another custom at the time that especially if a rabbi was eating at a home, the people could come in and listen to the conversation. The idea being that that's what rabbis are there. They're there to teach something, so you'd come... And that could also be the case for other uh, high-profile people, that people from the community could actually come in. They didn't get to eat, but they could stand around and observe and listen to the conversation. And when you didn't have TV or radio or anything like that, that was probably a good form of entertainment. You know, you're going to go hear uh, what's going on at the dinner over there. So she comes in, And she's brought this flask with her, um, which seems to indicate that she had already decided to anoint Jesus with it if she had the chance. And and then in verse 37, we see standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. So she's standing behind. Remember, his feet are probably out away from the table. Um, And so she's standing behind. And at first, I get the impression she wasn't starting out by trying to, like, manufacture tears so that she could wash his feet because who could really do that? But she's standing behind him, and she just starts weeping. And some of her tears are falling on Jesus' feet. And then she realizes that her tears are falling on his feet. She doesn't have a towel with her. So she bends over and she starts to wipe his feet with her hair. Now, there are some speculations on when she had experienced her salvation or her forgiveness of sins. Some say, well, maybe she had been one of the ones baptized by John the Baptist. That's a pretty good possible explanation. Perhaps she had been out to hear Jesus teach and had repented of her sins and realized that this is who she could trust in for salvation. One way or another, it seems she came in here and she had had this forgiveness already, this sense of repentance that had been granted her, and she comes in and sees Jesus and all over again. The sorrow over sin combined with the warmth and love she felt manufactures this pouring out of tears. And she probably was had shame and gratitude along with that, feeling shame for the sins even though she's forgiven. We still should feel some shame even when we're forgiven. And uh, she's showing gratitude. Um, and she, so she realizes her feet, her, her tears have made Jesus' feet wet. She now bends over with no towel, so she undoes her hair. Now, this is a huge deal because in that society, if a woman took her hair down for anyone other than her husband, this was, would be a major scandal. That might sound strange to us today. But this was the case then. But she's just not like worrying about convention. That's not again. That's a legalism, right? That's not something that Scripture says that they have. You know, if you let your hair down, you're in trouble or something. That was a custom at the time. So she lets her hair down and she starts using her hair to wipe the feet, and then she gets the oil or the ointment out and uh, or perfume actually, um, and and does that. So this was like this a situation that probably would have been very uncomfortable for almost everybody there, okay? Here's a very sinful person that everybody come, seems to know, and she's undoing her hair, which is like t- crazy, and she's, you know, they, they say ugly crying. She's kind of like, she's crying hard, right? If you're crying hard enough for your tears to drip on someone's feet, enough that you need to wipe them off, that's a lot of crying. So she's a mess, Right? she's She's a mess, and her hair's she's using her hair to wipe his feet, and some people think that's you know that are there might think, well does you know what's she doing here is this a this is kind of weird you know and uh yet Jesus doesn't seem to be that bothered by it, right Kent Hughes wrote this, he said, "I would be embarrassed if I saw such a display yet." though it was clearly passionate it was not erotic it was a beautiful and fully proper outpouring of love by a redeemed soul slaves were assigned to attend the feet of others but she washed his feet at her own command it was an act of desperately joyous humility desperately joyous humility do we ever have that we ever think about our sins and have desperately joyous humility. They seem like conflicting words, right? At first glance, that might be an oxymoron, like desperately joyous humility. Those words don't go together. But actually, I think that's a great phrasing by Kent Hughes to say that. Matthew Henry commented on this as well. He said this, "'She stood behind him weeping. Her eyes had been the inlets and outlets of sin, and now she makes them fountains of tears.'" Her face is now foul with weeping, which perhaps used to be covered with paints, in other words, makeup. A prostitute would wear heavy makeup, right? Her hair now made a towel of, which before had been plaited and adorned. We have reason to think that she had before sorrowed for sin, but now that she had an opportunity of coming into the presence of Christ, the wound bled afresh and her sorrow was renewed. Note, Matthew Henry says, It well becomes penitence upon all their approaches to Christ to renew their godly sorrow and shame for sin when he is pacified. Do we have a sh- sorrow and shame for sin in our society that says don't shame anybody? We ought to have shame for our sin. This is a very moving display. Yet Jesus' host was disgusted by it. Verse 39, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman that is that who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Have we all had thoughts like this at times? Are we willing to admit that? Some of us at times need to repent of our arrogance when we look down on other forgiven sinners. This Pharisee thinks even less of Jesus than he already did. He rejects him as a prophet who would allow this display of affection and touch. He can't be a prophet. He wouldn't, if he was a prophet, he'd know who this one was. He, he wouldn't be even let, he would tell her to get away. But Jesus is about to prove that he is a prophet because he knows exactly what this man is thinking. In verse 40, Jesus answering him. So if you think how alarming this might be for you if you had a thought and somebody answered you. It says, Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. So Jesus is about to show he is a prophet because he knows the thoughts of his host. By the way, this is not Simon Peter. This is a Pharisee named Simon. And Simon was a fairly common name in that time and place. It would be like a Matthew or a Mark or a John today. There's a very common name. And now he gives this lesson. And he says, A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? So one denarii is about one day's wage. So whatever your wage is, if you've ever figured out per day, that's about what we're talking about. One owes 50 days, basically, of wage to a person. So if, if your daily wage, for example, was $200, that would be a debt of what? 50 times 200? Uh, $1,000, right? <laughs> and the other would owe 10000 right? So... Which of him will love more? Well, both of those debts would take a long time to pay, but one is ten times larger. And Simon answers, verse 43, the one, I suppose, for whom he has canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, he said to him you have judged rightly. I, it's interesting, this I suppose. This seems a little flippant, doesn't it? Well, I suppose... I mean, he he had to have known the answer, but he wants to kind of play it cool. I suppose, did he realize he was kind of caught in his bad attitude towards this woman? Or is this continued disrespect towards Jesus? Because we're going to see here how disrespectful he actually had already been. I suppose, you know, imagine having someone over to your home that's a well-known person in the time that, Everybody else wants to go listen to and they engage you in a conversation and ask you a question. Well, I suppose, you know. I mean, this guy is not very friendly, I think, towards Jesus. All right, so let's see what Jesus says next. In verse 44, Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? Rhetorical question, right? Obviously he saw the woman. That's why he was disgusted. I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. All right. So, in summary, Simon is a bad host. He's a rude host, actually. Uh, it's not something probably just overlooked because in those days, tradition was so strong. When someone came in, you did X, Y, Z, certain things to show your hospitality. To, to not do it wasn't just a, oh, I forgot. Like when I plan a dinner and I've done this before and I forget all the condiments, that's just a mistake. But, but in this culture, you wouldn't forget these things. These are so ingrained. So he's a bad host. He should have at least provided water to his guest to wash his own feet, but he probably should have provided a servant to wash Jesus' feet when he came in. But he didn't do that. Customary greeting in those days was to greet someone with a kiss on the cheek. Some, people are, some of you grew up in a tradition like that, and you're okay with it. Some people are very uncomfortable with that. But that was the tradition as well at the time. He didn't do that. A good host would provide some oil as the face and hair would get dry in that climate, the dry, dusty climate, so it would be traditional for them to give them a little oil and they would maybe do their hair a little bit, and, you know, freshen up their face and their skin a little bit. He didn't do that. So these were standard practice if you're having a guest over for a dinner. You would do these things. Simon didn't do any of them. So in verse 47, he says, Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven for she loved much but he who is forgiven little loves little now it's important to recognize jesus is not saying she's forgiven because she loved much he's saying the proof of her forgiveness is that she loves much and so in uh, In one commentary, it said, Like the woman, unlike Simon, forgiven people love God and God's people. Those who are forgiven much love much. The Bible Knowledge Commentary said, But the woman who has not forgiven because of her love, the woman was not forgiven because of her love. Rather, she loved because she was forgiven. Her faith brought her salvation. And then in verse 48, Imagine hearing these words with your own ears from Jesus himself. Your sins are forgiven. What comforting words. What blessed words. David knew something about the comfort of forgiven sins. When he wrote Psalm 32, he said, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, And in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, that is, I didn't confess my sins. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Isn't that beautiful? David's expressing better than most of us because not all of us are poetic like this, but that as long as he didn't confess his sins, he was miserable. But as soon as he did, he sensed the forgiveness and the grace of God in forgiving his sins. That's a little bit like what this lady is experiencing as her tears are flowing. She realizes the wretchedness of her sin, the sorrow for the sin, the shame for the sin, and at the same time, she feels the love of Christ and the tears flow. As I said earlier, ugly crying, but you will never see anything more beautiful in your life than a sinner coming to Repentance. Verse 49, and those who are at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? So this is a big thing, right? He says your sins are forgiven. This is not something that men went around saying to uh, sinful women in that society. So they make, they're wondering about this. No one's ever spoken this way before. And then further, he says to the woman in verse 50, your faith has saved you, go in peace. And what peace that was for her. This is the peace that passes understanding granted by the Prince of Peace himself. This is the sort of command, by the way, go in peace. This is the sort of command that Jesus gives to one who is going to have that peace, not because they build it up within themselves, but because he has already granted the peace to her. It is a gift of God so that no one may boast, even the peace So again, we get back to that big idea this morning that the proper understanding of sin should bring shame to us and realization of forgiveness should bring gratitude and love towards Jesus. Jesus came to save sinners. Pride keeps many from believing on Jesus and all believers have been forgiven much. If you think you're one of the believers who only needed to be forgiven a little, you have not understood your sin yet. So Jesus came to save sinners. Let's talk about that for a moment. One of my pastors, uh, Gary Wilman, years ago, uh, he passed away a couple years ago from COVID, but uh, he would often say, why are we so surprised when sinners sin? Right? We look at the world, oh, what's wrong with these people? They're sinners. Why are we surprised that sinners are sinning? But I would ask this, why are people often disgusted when someone that's sinful is saved? They're not the right type of person. This lady, it was a very uncomfortable thing. Uh, I've heard stories, sadly, more than one, like this. In fact, I remember a specific story. The the prostitute, a real prostitute, came into a real American church, and she was dressed really modestly, And she sat in the back because of her shame. And she responded to the gospel message and came to the front and was weeping at the front just like this lady was. And her demeanor and her immodest dress offended people so that people told her, you can't come back here dressed like that. First thing they say to her. Now, by the way, If someone was attending church regularly and they were dressing very modestly, I think there's a conversation to have. But in the moment that they just got saved, for Pete's sakes, they're disgusted by the fact that God just did a miracle right in front of their eyes and saved a woman who you and I might not have saved. So why are people often disgusted when people are saved? It's a question to ask. Another question to ask is, do we sometimes look down on the ones that we deem more sinful than ourselves? Another question, do we have a desire to see this sort of thing? Do we want to see a person so overcome with their guilt and shame and sense of sinfulness that all they can do is cling to Jesus? And ought we not to do the same? Then we get to the next point, which is pride keeps many from believing on Jesus. We're talking now about this Pharisee named Simon. He clearly was not believing in Jesus, not for salvation anyway. Why do some people not come to Christ? It's because of their pride. Or the opposite wording of that is lack of humility unwilling to suffer humiliation that says, I am so sinful, I need a Savior, I can't do it on my own, I'm completely helpless, I need Jesus. That takes humility to do that, and many prideful people will never do that. Are we willing to completely expose our sinfulness before Christ, and will we bow before him? This lady didn't even bow in front of him. She bows behind. She's not even going to go towards his head to anoint his head. She's anointing his feet. She's getting down behind him. She doesn't even feel worthy to go closer than his feet. Will we bow before Jesus in humility? And the last point there, all believers have been forgiven much. From, uh, let's see here. This is from John Calvin, if you've ever heard of him. He said this, "...hence we again learn that ignorance of Christ's office constantly leads men to conceive new grounds of offense. The root of of the evil is that no one examines his own wretched condition, which undoubtedly would arouse every man to seek a remedy." There's no reason to wonder that hypocrites who slumber amidst their vices should murmur at it as a thing new and unexpected when Christ forgives sins. Why would we act like this is so surprising when God loves and desires to save sinners? And R.C. Sproul said this, you might have heard of him too. If you have but slightly experienced, that means a little bit, you've only a little bit experienced the forgiveness of God, is that because your sins are slight? Or is the slightness of your experience of forgiveness a reflection of the degree or measure of your repentance? If you have experienced the forgiveness of Christ in equal measure to the reality of your sin, then you have been forgiven much, because our sins have indeed been many, And so we are candidates to be great lovers of Christ if we would but experience his forgiveness. So our proper response, my friends, to this is to look at our own vile sin. And as Matthew Henry said in that earlier quote, we would do well to renew our godly sorrows and shame for our sin so that we can renew our love an outpouring of compassion back to the Lord. Ezekiel 16, this is kind of what he- Matthew Henry was referring to when he said that, is, says this, uh, Ezekiel 16, 59 through 63. For thus says the Lord God, I will deal with you as you have done, you who have despised the oath in breaking the covenant, yet I will remember my covenant covenant with you in the days of your youth, And I will establish for you an everlasting covenant. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed. Ezekiel is saying you'll be ashamed and it's a good thing. (laughs) Shame is not a bad thing if it leads us to the cross. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you take your sisters, both your elder and your younger, and I give them to you as daughters, but not on account of the covenant with you. I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall know that I am the Lord, that you may remember and be confounded and never open your mouth again because of your shame. When? When I atone for you, for all that you have done, declares the Lord. So God wants us to feel shame so that we come and confess our sins before him. But he promises that for who puts in their faith in Christ, he will remove the shame completely in the end. Just as God promised Israel that he would remember his covenant and atone for all that they had done, So it was fulfilled on the cross of Christ. And now as believers, we may have confidence to know that if we say we have no sins, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's our Jesus. This is the work Jesus completed on the cross and he delights to apply that work to all who believe on him. So weep for your sins because you have sinned much. And love Jesus much for you have been forgiven much if you are in Christ. If we love Jesus, we must likewise love his church. You cannot claim to love Christ and hate his people or even some or even one. So if you have in your heart, harboring any ill feelings towards someone who is one of Christ's redeemed, that's a reflection that you need to repent again and come back to Christ. I've said it before probably, so you might have heard this before, but I feel like I read it somewhere that Jesus thinks of the church as his bride. Now I'll ask the men out here that are married, if I was to tell you, hey, I... I like you so much, brother. You're such a good friend. I hate your wife, though. What kind of a friend would I be? How do you claim to love Christ if you don't love his church? And how can you love the church if you don't love all the people in the church? And that's our duty as believers. So we need to weep for our sins because we've sinned much, and we need to love Jesus much because we've been forgiven much. And if we love Jesus, we must love his church. We, all of us who believe, have received the great grace of God, so we must show his grace to others. So, again, the big idea here, the proper understanding of sin should bring shame. But realization of forgiveness should bring gratitude and love. And I capitalize that for a reason, by the way, because that's the most important. Jesus came to save sinners. Pride keeps many from believing in Jesus. And all believers have been forgiven much. And if you ever have a moment in your life where you think, I'm glad I'm not as bad as those other sinners, repent of that. And realize that if Paul and others in Scripture could say, I was about the worst, then we need to realize that no matter what our sins are, it's cosmic treason against a holy God. And so no matter how little you think of your own sins, you don't think you need to think bigger of them because you've offended a holy God. A holy God. But if you confess your son sins to him, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And so when we see the response of this woman, that her tears fall down, in fact, some, some in the translating work that some did, they said the idea here is that it came down like rain. If we could have a sense of that, we would have a much greater love for Christ because we would understand better what he has done for us and the cost of his sacrifice on our behalf. What a great gift he's given to us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this great story from Scripture. I pray, Lord, that you would convict us when we feel towards sinful people like this Pharisee felt towards this woman. In fact, Lord, I pray that you, by the Holy Spirit, reveal in each of our hearts specific instances of when we've done it so that we may confess of that sin, repent of it, and turn away from it, and embrace the sinner as you would who comes to Christ. Because even though this woman was a sinner, Lord, you made her righteous. And therefore, Lord, you get the glory. Lord, I pray that our hearts would be broken for sinners and that we would desire to please you with our lives and that when we sense our own wretchedness in our own sin and realize what we were forgiven of, that our love for you would increase exponentially. And that your church here at Oasis would be known as a people of great love for Christ and a great love for his church. I ask it, Lord, in the name of Jesus, would you help us to do it? Amen. Amen.